me invite you to open your Bibles once again to Matthew chapter 5 as we resume our study of the Beatitudes, which is since the third part of our broader study of the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. This morning our focus will be on Matthew 5 verse 6. But as we have done for the past few weeks, just setting the context, we began reading verses 1 and 2, skipping down to verse 6, because all of the Beatitudes are to be seen together. While we are dissecting them and separating them, we, we see them as they, as they come together. So the word of the Lord, Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, skipping down to verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The word of the Lord. Let's go to our God in prayer, that he would speak to us, both by his spirit as well as by the word that he's recorded for us. Our Father, as we come and commit this uh, time to you, uh, a time that continues in our worship, as we have worshipped through song, worship through prayer, worship through confession, we now worship you, we honor you by giving our ear to you to listen for your voice through the word and the spirit that you have given to us. We worship you, Lord, by recognizing that you have spoken and you will speak and you continue to speak and you will shape us by this word you've given. So we pray that you would inform our minds, but the information that we gain would simply be a kindling to spark our hearts that our hearts would be drawn even more closely to you and shape us that more and more we would die to our sin and grow into the image that you have created for us to be, each reflecting Christ and yet each individually beautiful as you've made us. So Lord, may this be the reality. May you use these moments to do that work that we might walk with you. We pray in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. It's been said that you are what you eat. Most of us understand that. I mean, we have this kind of basic understanding that if you have a steady diet of jelly donuts, there's a good chance that eventually you will begin to look like a jelly donut. Even more scientifically, and even for those who eat more healthy, as I understand it, it's been, there are some who... If they ingest a certain amount of carotene, their skin develops somewhat of an orangish tint to it because for some they are what they eat. And so if you're, you're bringing that in. But we recognize that whether it is scientific or whether it's metaphorically. We recognize the principle you are what you eat to represent the truth that our appetites determine or at least help in determining what it is that we become. And Jesus seems to adopt that very principle in this verse that we read this morning. Now, I know nowhere in the scripture where Jesus says, you are what you eat. This is as close as I understand uh, that it may come to it. But the principle is, nevertheless, is, is still very clearly here. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. There's an essence in which what Jesus says here is, is a very succinct explanation of the essence of the Christian life. As we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we are blessed, and we are find the satisfaction that we long for, all encapsulated in, in this very simple phrase. 
And yet as simple as the phrase is, the actually living it out is much more difficult for us, and it's much more difficult for any, any number of reasons. They, well, partly, I suppose, it's because in our culture, much that we have available to us has a tendency to quench our hunger and our thirst. And it's not even the bad things. Even things that are good bring us comfort, bring us ease, and then satisfy us, and we're no longer hungry. We are no longer thirsty. We have filled ourselves up on all sorts of things, some good, perhaps some not as good. But we remember that while we may be, we may be what we eat, we live in a junk food world. And so therefore, it's one of the reasons that makes it very difficult for us to continually hunger and thirst after righteousness. But because there is truth in the fact that we are what we eat, and because spiritual health comes to our spiritual hungers and thirsts, Jesus kind of plays the role of a spiritual dietitian. He prescribes for us a diet and then tells us what the results of maintaining that diet are promised to be. Now, for the sake of the flow of our, our message this morning, I'm going to pick up on Jesus' theme, the food theme here. It will be a little simplistic, I'll even say cheesy, but it will be memorable here as we break down and kind of flow what it is that Jesus is speaking with us. So the first thing that we need to see if we're going to understand what Jesus is prescribing for us here is what the diet is that Jesus is prescribing for us. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But it begs the question, what is righteousness? I mean, many of you are committed to eating healthy, and so therefore you are conscious of what it is that is the ingredients of anything that you're eating. So you read the labels. Back in some states, it's becoming required, whether it's fast food or anything else, that anything that is available to eat, they have to list everything that is involved. And I think it's an appropriate thing to do for us spiritually as well. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. In other words, what the diet he wants us to ingest and consume is righteousness. It makes sense that we would ask what it is that we're feeding on. I mean, it certainly is appropriate to trust Jesus. He only has our best in mind. He's created all. So we could go ahead and skip the looking at the labels. But we also benefit and understand better if we look at what Jesus is telling us that we are to take in. And Jesus declares that what we are to be feeding on is righteousness. Now, that word righteousness for many people seems just to be kind of an archaic leftover from a narrow-minded, obsolete gone by, uh, day gone by. It just doesn't seem to fit our contemporary culture. In fact, it's rejected, at least as it's presented here. The irony that I find in that is that there is always a measure of righteousness, and every person, every culture, has their own standards of righteousness. And even our secular culture, which rejects God's word or rejects anything that might come from God, and therefore the implications of the righteousness as Jesus is speaking of it, the irony is, is that very rejection is one of their standards of righteousness. Those who are willing to accept God's word as God's word and be shaped by it, well, we may be quaint, we may be foolish. In fact, in some cases, we are now being labeled bigoted because we are embracing what God says as opposed to whatever is the current standard of righteousness within the culture. 
And so the rejection of God's word, in a, sen- in a sense, becomes a standard of righteousness for some people who reject the whole concept of righteousness. The righteousness that they're talking about is whatever marks you as being right. Whatever makes you acceptable, that is what righteousness is. And so every culture has those standards. And our culture that rejects the concept of at least biblical righteousness has those as well. Now, even with that, it's important that we understand what it is that God means by the righteousness that he wants us to be taking in. Even if we were to, it's a fascinating consideration, what are the standards of righteousness for our culture? But right now what we're concerned of, what are the standards of righteousness according to God? Because through Jesus Christ, he's speaking to us and saying, this is what we are to hunger and thirst for. And so it would be helpful for us to define righteousness. And biblically, righteousness is, I think, best described and best defined as this. It is right action propelled by right faith. Or we could do it backwards. It is right faith that propels us to right action. Both elements are necessary for us to meet the standard of biblical righteousness. There are those who focus on the one, right faith. And in our tradition, perhaps even in our own church, that's one that we get very committed to, we turn our attention to, and we focus on. We want to make sure that we have our sound doctrine, and not just sound, but rich doctrine and deep understanding of doctrine. And so there are some within our own church family, the broad family, who focus so much on the doctrine and the orthodoxy that they never get around to doing anything. And as important as sound doctrine is, it's important that we recognize that by knowing but not doing is not righteousness. There's an old statement that I heard and I use frequently now is that there are some people who are dead right. Unfortunately, they're mostly dead. And it's something that we need to be careful of because we do want to teach deep and rich truth within our church. We want to understand who God is, what he requires of us, and then we need to be acting upon what it is that God calls us and God has shown us. On the other hand, there are a number of people who focus on the externals, on the behavior or the moral aspect of being righteous and putting themselves fully in conformity with God's word. What does God's word say? That's what I am going to do. And yet they do so at the neglect of the foundation of righteousness, which is right belief. It's not that they necessarily have a wrong belief, but they are assuming and they're focusing their attention on themselves rather than on God's grace and God's Holy Spirit and God's power within us. And they're doing some wonderful things. They may be engaged in global mission. They may be ministering to the poor who are around us. They may just be encouragers of everyone that they meet. And they're doing wonderful things, noble things, and they're presenting those to God. And God tells us, here's what he thinks of such activities that are done apart from being propelled by an act of faith. God says, all of those good things, as wonderful as they are, they are like filthy rags in his presence. See, doing without being propelled by a substantive and an act of faith is not impressive to God and does not meet the standard of righteousness. Both knowing and doing related to one another is the essence of biblical righteousness. But even if we have that understanding, it's also helpful, maybe even important and essential for us to understand this, is that biblical righteousness 
even defined in that way, has at least three different components, three different expressions. Or some would say like a diamond or like a prism has the beauty of three different aspects. And all of those are important and all of those we are called. Jesus has in mind all of these things as we look at it. Now, for the more theological, the first thought might be, well, of course, when we talk about righteousness that we're to hunger for, we're to hunger for what's known in theological circles as imputed righteousness. It means the righteousness that belongs to Jesus Christ, his perfection, that is counted to all as if it belongs to us, though it's really still Jesus's, as part of the gift of faith. Others might realize, well, there is an actual righteousness that we are actually to do what God tells us to do. And therefore, to become more and more like Christ. One is imputed, one is actual. What's the difference between the two? Well, it's the difference between the car that somebody gave you for your graduation or 16th birthday and the rental car that you uh, take out when you go on a trip. One is yours. One is, might as well be yours because you paid for it for a short time, or at least it was granted to you, but you are going to give it back. In a sense, we don't give back the righteousness of Christ, but it's not ours. It's fully his. But it is what God sees when we stand before him, he declares us to be as righteous as Christ. It's called imputed. It's credited to us. And then as we respond to that, as we are set free, as we are motivated by that gift of that love and that grace, and we understand it, and we move out and want to honor God, we obey what he says. Jesus says, if you, want, if you love me, then do what I command. He's not saying, if you want me to love you, do what I command. But if you want to know how to express your love for Christ, then the simple expression that Jesus has given us is simply to obey what he's commanded. And in so doing, we find that he loved us even more than we knew. And even his commands are gifts of his grace. But there's also a third aspect. Some of you, it might be the first thing that came to mind. It certainly is, is, is a consciousness for our culture, both inside and outside the church, and that would be social righteousness. It's the compassion and the, the concern, the vindication of the downtrodden, the oppressed, and the afflicted. And that is something else that is very clear that we are to be about as the followers of Jesus Christ. John Stott put it this way about social righteousness. The Christian is someone who is committed to hungering and thirsting for righteousness in the whole of the human community as something pleasing to a righteous God. So the fact that we feel the compulsion and the desire to go and to minister to people who are hurting, people who are in need, people who cannot help themselves, we do that not only as an expression of love for them, but realizing that it is pleasing to God and it is a reflection of God who has done the very same thing to you and me, for we can't help ourselves and we are poor and we are needy and we are helpless and we are in need of an advocate. But we also need to realize that that social Righteousness is really a, an expression, and a natural outgrowth of our actual righteousness, of our obedience, and of Christ alive within us. Theologian and scholar D.A. Carson puts it this way when we consider the different aspects of righteousness. Righteousness includes within its semantic ranges all the derivative meanings 
but it cannot be reduced to any one of them. So what does that mean? I think Carson is rightly pointing out is, if you were able to track with me through the theological lecture, which is mostly over at this point, and recognize there are three different dimensions, three different aspects of righteousness. All of them are important, but when Jesus is saying that we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness, we cannot reduce it into any one. All three work together. The beauty of it, just like with a diamond, just like with a prism, the beauty of it is when we see the other aspects in relationship, well, the aspects in relationship to one another. And they do have a relationship. And it's vitally important that we understand that relationship. Otherwise, we end up with a disproportionate diet. We must understand that the essence of the Christian life, the foundation of the Christian life, is the imputed righteousness of Christ. In other words, our need is what Jesus has and what Jesus offers and is counted as ours. And any actual righteousness that we do, anything we do in obedience or to please or to honor God, must be propelled from that foundation. Otherwise, we are earning or thinking we are earning or impressing God. On the other hand, as the Apostle James pointed out, if we focus only on that which is counted as ours and understand what great riches we have, James says we have reason to question whether we truly are believers and all that stuff that we have been learning about, if it really belongs to us, if our faith does not propel us to action. James says, show me your faith by what you do. While many people think that the Apostle Paul and James uh, had taught different theologies, the Apostle Paul says the only thing that matters is faith that expresses itself in love. They are the same statements talking to two different kinds of people. The foundation of our faith, the thing that makes us Christian and propels us into obedience and into love, uh, services of love is what Christ has done for us. That is the essence of Christianity. Everything else is moralism. But a Christianity that doesn't move you into obedience and to acts of love is dead and is not Christianity at all. And so Jesus has in mind here all three aspects, and as they all work together, and he's saying, here is the diet for the Christian, is that you are to hunger and to thirst after righteousness. That's what it is that we eat, because we, we are what we eat. The second thing, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, let's just look at the eating schedule that Jesus has for us. Any dietitian is not only going to tell you what you should eat, but when it's appropriate, when you will benefit most and how you are to eat. And as we look at that, there's a couple of things that step out, uh, jump out at me. The first thing I want you to notice is this, that Jesus expresses this in the most intense terms possible. Hunger, thirst. It's very easy to overlook that. But for those of you that have studied basic psychology, let me ask you a question. Where would hunger and thirst fall in Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs? It is the most fundamental. It is the most basic. It is the most intense desire. For if somebody is truly hungry, if somebody is in starving, if somebody is truly thirsty, as in wasting away, there is no other desire that comes to their mind. Self-preservation, the physiological needs, as Maslow has pointed out, and I think rightly so, they're the most important things on our minds. 
or at least to us, when we find ourselves in those circumstances. You know, somebody who isn't eating, hasn't eaten for days, and has only had maybe a bottle of water um, over in the past couple of days, is probably not concerned about whether or not he's going to get a good deal on, his, on a new car. If somebody is truly hungering, somebody is truly starving, they are not worried at that moment about whether the kids are going to get into the college of their first choice. If you are hungering and you are thirsting, you think of nothing other than that which is going to satisfy, not that desire, but that need. And Jesus is speaking of our hungering and thirsting after righteousness in the most intense ways possible. And yet this is very difficult for us, and it's understandable that it's difficult. I don't say this as a condemnation, just but as a pointing out of the difficulty we have, because it's difficult for any of us, or really uh, probably for any of us, certainly for most of us, to really understand the intensity with which Jesus is speaking, because we've never really been hungry. We've never really been thirsty. We've experienced it. You know, you might have had a few days during college and break where you didn't have any cash, and, you know, the only thing that was in your cabinet was some stale mac and cheese. You might have done hours' worth of yard work in the hot sun or finished a long round of golf or run a mini-marathon, and you understand what thirst is, and you need that thirst quenched. But for most of us, it doesn't cross our mind that maybe we won't get it. Everything is available to us immediately. Turn on the tap, the water comes. Open the fridge, there's food that is in there. Or even just go to the grocery store and get anything you want. And even going to the grocery store is not that difficult anymore. I, I realized the other day, I don't know what I thought it was, but I realized the other day that even at Harris Keeter, you don't even have to get out of your car anymore to get your groceries. You just go on the computer, send them your list, drive up to the machine, stick your card in, somebody will come out and deliver the groceries, everything you could possibly eat, into your car. I told Carolyn when I figured out what that was, that I just I wanted to try that. I was going to order some peanut butter and go and drive and see if they'll deliver it to me. If I do that, Carolyn wanted me to make sure that you understood this is without her permission. She thinks that would be totally inappropriate. I haven't decided yet whether I'm going to do it. But anyway, but I mean, these are things, and these are not bad things. I'm not condemning our culture and the way that we have been blessed. But these very things make it difficult for us to truly understand the intensity with which Jesus is speaking here. Because most of our issue is not about hungering and thirsting, but it's about taste. It's about preferences or whatever we have a hunkering for. I mean, for instance, when we were in seminary, which was as close to hungry as we have been, we ate a lot of red beans and rice. I worked five part-time jobs. Carolyn worked as well. But in order to make the ends meet, we were reduced to eating red beans and rice. Now, I know many of you probably love red beans and rice, but as soon as I graduated and got a real job, I said, I will never eat a bean as long as I live. And so far, I haven't been hungry enough to need to eat a bean. It's just, that's the way that we experience things. But Jesus is not talking about that kind of hunger that we might want. What do we want for a late afternoon snack? Or what, what do we want for dinner tonight? He's talking about life and death, hunger and thirst here. And difficult as it is for us, as he was thinking, think about the people that he was first speaking to, they understood implicitly. Because in first century Palestine, every day was right on the brink 
of starvation and thirsting because they didn't have the conveniences and the same blessings. The wealthy provided for themselves, but they didn't have all the things that we need. And so they were not far from. We have been so insulated from that, but they would certainly understand the intensity with which Jesus is speaking. But Jesus is telling us that we need to grasp somewhat of that understanding because the person that is blessed is the person who longs for righteousness the way that a truly hungry or a truly thirsty person longs for food and drink. But the other thing that's interesting here in terms of the, is that the intensity, it's even more intensified because Jesus says that this is an ongoing and continuous hunger and thirst. It's not as evident in our English translations, but it's demanded that we recognize that when we look at the Greek. Essentially, we should transfer it, blessed are those who continually hunger and thirst after righteousness. What that tells us is that no matter how much a healthy Christian has, he never has enough of God. He is always longing for more. And God's promise to satisfy says that God will always give no matter how much grace we have, we are not filled to the point that we want no more. We always are hungering and thirsting for more. And if we are not, it's evidence that we have some sort of a eating disorder. And again, that's not our pattern. As I understand, those who, I don't know if it's every franchise, but McDonald franchises, a lot of the owners of the different franchises will let their employees eat whatever they want as much as they want. Because they've learned that while they may take a hit for the first week, it doesn't take very long before the people that they've hired don't want anything that they have on their menu. And then they just go to work. And so they don't have that continuous hunger. Jesus is saying, well, that's natural for us in many things. Jesus is saying, the, the spiritual hunger that we have, we always are hungering and thirsting for God. And even when we've been given in great abundance, we still want more, and God promises more. And that whole idea is almost incomprehensible, if, if not totally incomprehensible, to our modern culture. It's not that they don't understand of wanting more. They get it. Even think about the aspects of something like greed, but it doesn't even have to reach the level of greed. I don't remember who it was, but a wealthy man was asked, how much is enough? And he said, just a little more. But even those of us who wouldn't consider ourselves necessarily wealthy, we have enough to pay our bills, we put enough aside to retire. We are comfortable. We don't usually, most of us say, that's enough, I'm, I'm done this week. Now, at times we would come to that point, but the normal is we continue on as long as we are able because even when we have enough, we're still hungry for more. Perhaps it's to bring us more comfort. Perhaps it's so that we can give it away. But we understand that concept. Even when we are filled, we still have that desire for more. And, and the culture understands that. In fact, our culture is driven by something like that. And so they can work for anything tangible. But the idea that somebody would hunger and thirst after a concept like righteousness, something that they would consider, or that we might even consider, simply a philosophical thing, but not something I can touch, it just is absurd. And as absurd as it is to our 
contemporary culture, I'm not sure that it is much more comprehensible to much of the contemporary church. Because too many of our churches, even those with biblical foundations, and would have a, a high view, knowing that it's, it's God's word, the focus for a couple of generations now is increasingly how can we be liked by the culture? How can we be like the culture? How can we be like them so that they would consider us to be relevant? So that they will like us, so that they will come and they will join us. And the focus, even with a biblical foundation in too many of our churches, is not about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, but hungering and thirsting after whatever other people are hungering and thirsting for. And as a result, the pursuit of relevance has made us about almost totally irrelevant. What we need to understand is this, because in our churches we get gauged on things of relevance or or entertainment or the taste. But we need to understand this, a truly starving man will not walk into a restaurant and look at the aviance and say, no, this place is probably not for me. A truly thirsty person is not going to be given water and then look at the container and saying, "I, I don't think I like this cup. Do you have another one? The hungry and thirsty person is hungering and thirsting, and whatever is presented to them, they take, and they take thankfully, and they voraciously will participate in that. And too often in the contemporary church, we're more concerned about the aviance and the tools than we are about the meal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the world doesn't understand it, and considering us foolish, we hunger and thirst for their approval more than we hunger and thirst after righteousness. So in the church, we have two difficult two difficulties. We hunger and thirst for the approval of the world rather than righteousness. And in some of our conservative churches, it could be an issue for us at any time. We hunger and thirst to be right more than we hunger and thirst to be righteous. Jesus is saying, this is not what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to live with a hunger and thirst for genuine righteousness. We've looked at the ingredients. We've looked at the meal schedule. So now I want to look at the results that Jesus promised. It makes sense if you go to a dietitian or somebody who's going to help you with your diet, they're going to not only tell you what you need to do, but they're going to lay out for you results that you should expect, right? Otherwise, most of us wouldn't talk to them in the first place. And Jesus does that here as well. He not only tells us what we should hunger and thirst for and how we should hunger and thirst and, and participate, but there are also promised results, and we see that at the second part of this verse. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Or some translations say, they shall be filled. Both words are important, are appropriate, and go together here. So we need to recognize first is the status of being blessed. If you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, you are blessed. As we've said several times, and we'll continue, I'm sure, throughout the series, the word blessed is often translated as happy, and that's not wrong, but it is inadequate. Happiness is based on pure circumstances. Blessed is a status that is bestowed by God upon those whom God loves. 
it includes happiness, but it would go beyond. There'd be peace. There'd be any number of attributes that go with it. Just the word blessed is, is full. It is a status, and we need to understand whether we feel it or not. If we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if that is the desire that we have, is to be righteous and to feed on the righteousness of Christ and to grow in righteousness. Jesus is saying, you are blessed. You are accepted by God as a status that will not be changed. But it's very important that we note this. Because everything that I've said so far could be taken down one avenue when God intends it for something else. We need to understand that the blessing that is pronounced is not some celebration of personal achievement or found in a high esteem. See, we need to note here that the person who is blessed is the one who is hungry and thirsty for a righteousness that they do not have, but they long for. They are blessed for hungering, not for achieving, not for possessing. They are blessed because of their desire for righteousness. They're blessed not because they are righteous, but because they are in harmony with the will of God and his design. And they are starved for, and they are empty of, and feel empty of, needed grace and righteousness. That's important for us to know because for some of you, you can sit here and listen to all of that and you look at your lives and say, but I'm not righteous like I want to be. The key there is want to be, not compared to somebody else. Others of us will sit here and say, got it down, righteous. And yet that kind of attitude satiates. It takes away the hunger and the thirst if we think those terms. Note the grace is in the process of God who has you, who is at work within you, who is kindling that hunger within you and promises to me you are blessed by the hunger. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor, a theologian, and a medical doctor a couple of generations ago, he says that this passage is a wonderful test for all of us. It's a simple test that only we can take for our own lives. Because if you have hunger, it's a good indication that you, hunger for righteousness, it's a good indication that you're a believer. If you do not hunger for righteousness in all three of its aspects, then you have good reason to ask yourself, am I a follower of Jesus Christ? Do I belong to him? It's a test because if we have righteous, if we have that hunger for righteousness, we know that it's exactly, we're functioning exactly the way that God has designed it and we wants for us to. If we don't have that, we know there's something wrong. We may or may not be a believer, but if we are a believer, there's something wrong within us because we're not hungering for a righteousness that we still don't have. And because of that, it is a wonderful test for all of us because, one, we get a very quick read on where am I in my spiritual health right now. Second, for those who have that hunger, even those who find that they are not hungry but want to be hungry, you're on the road to what Jesus is calling us to. Because Jesus is telling us 
that he will promise to fill those who are hungry and thirsty. But now we have this paradox as well. Um, he's going to fill us, but only if we have a continual hunger and thirst. But if we are full, we don't necessarily continue to hunger and thirst, do we? We need to understand what Jesus is talking about here is something that is a spiritual and dynamic, and so in one sense, he's using metaphor, but we can also illustrate it in a way that most of us will understand. With all pardon for those of you who are gluten-free, I'm going to use an illustration that even if you don't, uh, if it doesn't apply to you, you'll get. Imagine that sometime in the after lunch, late this afternoon, mid-afternoon, I don't know when you're going to eat lunch, soon for those who are worried, Somebody bakes and brings in a fresh back, uh, a batch of newly baked chocolate chip cookies. They're still warm. You can still smell them. Even the chocolate is still a little messy. And so out of the kindness of your heart, you're willing to eat the first one, right? So that somebody can, somebody went all that trouble for you, you don't want to offend them. So you eat the cookie, and it brings delight and even a satisfaction. And so because you're so satisfied, you reach for another, and then another, and then another, until somebody reminds you you are what you eat, you know. But anyway, that's um, it's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. There's a dynamic that even when we have our full, we desire more because of the blessing. And unlike cookies and jelly donuts, we don't get bloated. It produces in us the spiritual fruit, character that we desire. But we never have so much of it that we, if we're spiritually healthy, we think, I don't need any more. I don't want any more. So we are blessed. We are filled and satisfied. But before we go, we need to ask this question, but how do we cultivate that? How do we become a people who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness? And I think that Jesus has already given us the recipe and the Beatitudes that have come before. Because a person who is spiritually hungry and thirsty is one who has a poverty of spirit, who recognizes that no matter how good you are, no matter how great deeds you have done, no matter how impressed other people are with yourself, no matter how impressed you may be with yourself at times, you realize that none of that is impressive to God, and therefore you have nothing. In fact, our sin is a debt before our God, and we are hopeless and helpless except the mercy of God. And because we recognize the presence of our sin, we mourn over that sin. We mourn not only about the expressions of our sin, but the very fact that our condition is sin. And so we mourn over both the fruit and the root of the sin that is in our lives. And embracing a, an attitude of meekness rather than pride, which are at war within one another, we realize the need that we have. Pride begins to build up walls and compensate so that people will not know that we're spiritually impoverished. They will not see us in mourning, or maybe even that we don't have to mourn anymore. But the meek person recognizes, even when somebody faces them and saying, I think this is true of you, their response would be, well, rather than you don't know, they say, you don't know the half of it. I'm worse than you think. That's the meekness. But a person who is spiritually indebted or spiritually impoverished, poverty of spirit, who is broken and mourns, 
and who is not proud will find that they are hungering for the righteousness of Christ that is offered to us and hungering to become more and more like Christ and hungering that others would experience it as well. May God be at work within us to turn us into this kind of a people. We come now to this table.